All right, Psalm 76, uh, we aren't certain, but a possible backdrop, though we're not told that, could uh, be, many believe, uh, the time when the angel uh, of God, remember, was sent when the Assyrians had surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And the Assyrians were a conquering world power. They were the world-dominating kingdom at that time. And we're told that they came to Jerusalem, they surrounded the city, Uh, In the days of uh, Hezekiah and the people were intimidated, it looked like it was absolute curtains for the people inside of the city. It looked like there was no way out. The city was being surrounded and besieged, and we're told ultimately that the Lord, wanting to give his people victory in a way that they could not obtain victory on their own, and I think that's important because sometimes there are areas when we need to realize that we simply cannot obtain victory on our own and the only way we're going to get victory is if God genuinely intervenes in a powerful way and that's exactly what God did remember it says that God sent an angel that evening while everyone was sleeping and it says that angel went through and and slew put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian army and the next morning when they got up their problem was solved The whole situation was changed, the threat was removed, and all of a sudden God had given them a victory they never could have conquered on their own. And keep in mind in that story, it doesn't say that God sent even Michael the archangel or Gabriel the angel. It says just an angel, so just a simple buck private, Adam the angel, Bob the angel. God just sends one angel And in one night, 185,000 of the enemies of God's people are dealt with and removed in that situation. So this incredible victory comes to pass. I mean, you just, again, if you put yourself in their sandals, imagine what that would be like facing that kind of crisis, the fear, the, you know, intimidation. I mean, imagine literally our community being surrounded by a, you know, brutal, barbaric people who have been conquering people. And I mean, the Assyrians were a barbaric, cruel people. The things that they would do to people when they would conquer territories. Uh, and and if we were literally facing that, and it seemed like that by the end of the next day, we were going to be dead, captured, or, or whatever, and to wake up the next day and literally see that God had dealt with the problem. And God completely resolved it in just one evening and and how they must have been shocked and overwhelmed by seeing the power of God. And it seems that this could be, some believe, the backdrop that Asaph here, the psalmist who's writing this, uh, is perhaps reflecting upon this glorious and this excellent and incredible victory as God defeats his enemy by his great power. Again, that passage comes to us, 2 Kings chapter 19. Isaiah records the same story in chapter 37. Uh, possible that that's what this is a reference to, but we can't be certain, but it could be an allusion to some of what's being described here. The psalm begins by telling us, Psalm 76, verse 1, in Judah, and again, keep in mind, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, so that would have us in the right setting. In Judah, God is known, he's revealed, he's become known. His name is great in Israel, among the the people of Israel, in Salem. Now, Again, Salem, understand, was the shortened version of Jerusalem. 
So sometimes we see Jerusalem referred to in this way. We see the king of Salem back in the book of Genesis with Melchizedek. You know. So here when it talks about Salem, it's actually a reference to Jerusalem. We know that because it's in Salem also is his tabernacle. So there in Jerusalem was where the tabernacle of God was, the meeting place of God's people where they gathered to worship and offer their sacrifices. And his dwelling place, that's God's dwelling place, was there in Zion. On Mount Zion is where the Temple Mount area was. And there, the psalmist says, he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle. So again, describing a very powerful conquest of an enemy. Those are military terms. God broke the arrows, the shield, and the sword of the battle that was against his people. So Again, the psalmist could be alluding to this incredible victory and how it happens supernaturally. Again, not without one uh, uh, arrow being launched over the wall, without one man having to go out and engage in actual combat and battle, God just supernaturally defeated their enemy for them and just conquered and solved the situation. And, you know, stories like that are always just a great reminder because sometimes we think that when there's some, you know, enemy force or something threatening us or coming against us, uh, that, that perhaps there's something we need to do in every situation to engage. You know, we got to put the gloves on. We got to get in the ring. We need to do something. We got to fire a few shots ourselves, do some things. And, and yet the Bible seems to teach quite the opposite when it comes to us dealing with our enemies and things that threaten us spiritually. The Bible tells us in Second Corinthians chapter 10 that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, that the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, that is fleshly of human efforts, but that they're not carnal, but, but spiritual, that they're, that they're of God, and, and that the, the weapons are spiritually yielding to the power of God through prayer, through his word, asking for God to intervene and to work, to bring down strongholds, to conquer our enemies and things in our lives. And this is what he did for the nation of Israel. And as you look at verses one through three here, in verse one, clearly he's describing how in the midst of this incredible, miraculous victory God gave to them, that there was a powerful revelation of who God was. He says there in verse one, in Judah, God is known. That is, he made himself known. When God did that, I assure you, he made himself known in a very clear way, both to the enemy of God's people, as well as to the people of God. God made himself known that he was a mighty king, a powerful deliverer, and someone who, when he wants to, can intervene and can change a situation overnight. And God made himself known. And sometimes when God is working, one of the ways that he works is in such a way whereby he can demonstrate things about himself. God is a God of revelation, and God wants us to know him. So sometimes God will work in ways, as he did in that situation, to make himself known, to reveal his name, to show things about his person. That Notice that his name is great in Israel, and certainly that was one of the revelations that happened in that situation. God made himself known. God showed that he was great in his person among Israel, and there his presence was manifested. Verse 2, he speaks about the presence of the Lord, that he's dwelling there in the midst of his tabernacle in Zion. So you have the revelation of God. You have the presence of God in verse 2 being manifested. And then verse 3, a clear description of the power of God, that he broke the arrows and the shields and the swords of battle against the enemy. And so God works in a way to reveal himself, 
to manifest his presence, to show that he's directly and personally involved in things and to show his power. And many times when God works in my life and your life, that's what he's doing a lot of times too. He's trying to make himself known to us in a greater way. He's trying to show us that his presence is real and that he's involved in our lives. And he's trying to demonstrate to us his power, both to us as well as to others who are watching what God does in our lives. Those are similar things he's doing today. And the psalmist, perhaps referring to this great victory that God gave to the people there on Mount Zion, he says, verse four, going on, now speaking to God, and you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout hearted, that is those who were stubborn and rebellious, he says they were plundered. And imagine how that happened. They went out and you have 185,000 dead troops. There's a lot of plunder to take right there. There's a lot that you can go out and plunder and take the spoils of battle, as it were. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men found the use of their hands. So again, that could be a very picturesque description of what God did. God literally just put them to sleep for good. Uh, God, God put them asleep in some way whereby he struck them with something where they just sunk into a sleep from which they went into that state of unconsciousness and never woke back up. God put an end to their lives. And he says there, none of those mighty men were able to find the use of their hands. It looked like that they were going to win and be victorious. And God changed that. Now, as the psalmist is reflecting upon what God did, I love how he says in verse four, he says, Lord, man, this was a glorious event. This was a glorious and a great thing that you did there on the mountains for us. But I love how in verse four, he says, but God, you are greater than even the greatest things that you do. So he's talking about something really great that God did. God worked in a way where he made himself known. He showed that he was great. His presence was manifested. His power was shown. He did something really glorious and excellent there on the mountains. But he says, but God, you're even more glorious than the glorious things that you do. In other words, God, you're greater than even all the great things you do. And I think this is an important thing because sometimes we get so enamored with the things that God does and the blessings that sometimes we, we, we get so caught up in the blessing that we forget about the blesser. And we get so caught up in, in the wonderful things that God does or God's doing and, and wonderful to rejoice in those things. Oh, Lord, you did this and, and this blessings come into my life and this great thing happened. And whether it's a, you know, a, a success in triumphing over sin or whether it's some great victory and something God does as he ministers through our life in some way or something that happens. And we're rejoicing and celebrating over that. And really, in some ways, we're almost kind of ignoring the reality of the Lord is more glorious himself and his person than even the glorious and great things that he does and brings into our lives. Remember, Jesus ultimately said, don't rejoice that demons submit to you in my name. Remember, they came back. They were so, Lord, you should see it. I mean, I almost imagine how humorous it must have been. Like, you should see it. The demons are submitting to us in your name. It was just somehow Jesus was a prayer. Wow. You can make demons submit to you? I'm. Lord, you should see all the great things that are happening. Jesus said, don't rejoice over that. You should rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. You want to rejoice over something. Jesus said, you want to celebrate. Don't celebrate that you're being effective in ministry. Don't celebrate you accomplished some successful things. Jesus said, what you should be celebrating is that despite your sinfulness, there's a God who loves you and is merciful and has made a way to forgive your sins and give you access into eternal life and your relationship with God, he's saying. 
that should be the greatest thing that you ever celebrate. And look, there are going to be lots of good things that God brings into our lives and does in our lives. Let's be careful that when we're cherishing and enjoying all the blessings and the good things that God does, that we don't forget the very good hand from which that comes from. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? God brings some good opportunity in your life. Don't get so caught up in the opportunity you fail to forget where the opportunity came from. God brings some wonderful person into your life, a relationship, a friend. Where did that come from? You know, that, that, that's an important thing to, to remember. And, and here the psalmist says, Lord, you, it, it's you, Lord, you're more glorious than this great victory. I'm thankful for the victory, but you are the one that is so great, Lord. And then he begins to offer praise unto the Lord. Notice verse six, he turns his full attention upon the Lord. That's what he wants to talk about. He says, verse six, Lord, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a dead sleep. Again, perhaps there he's inferring how God just spoke the word and he completely conquered the Assyrian army that night. The chariot and the horse, those were like the, the tanks of that day, right? Is at, at your spoken word, you just spoke a word of rebuke. How dare you threaten my people? How dare you try and harm one of my children? How dare you come against my people, the nation of Israel, the God of Jacob, he, he spoke a rebuke and he says, and they were instantly cast into a, a deep sleep from which I never woke up from. And as you look at verse six, it clearly speaks to praising the power of God's authoritative word. I mean, think about what he's saying there. Lord, how did that happen at your rebuke? God just determined it and then God spoke it and it was done. It was done. Now, that tells you something about God. When God decides something, it's done. When God speaks something, he declares something, it's done. If God rebukes something and says, it doesn't matter how obstinate someone is, how resistant, rebellious, to rebuke means to confront and to challenge someone, to, to, to confront them for what they're doing because you want them to stop and to cease. He says, Lord, at your rebuke, it's done. All God's got to do is speak the word. Remember, ultimately, we see this manifested in Jesus, who was God in the flesh. What did Jesus do when the storm was brewing and he was on the boat with the disciples? Remember, the wind was against them. It says the wind was contrary and they were straining at the oars and the, the waves were crashing over the boat and they thought they were going to sink. And, and they're dealing with incredible resistance. They're in the middle of a storm. They're struggling. It looks like that they are sinking. And Jesus speaks up, and what does it say he does? It says he rebukes the wind and the waves and tells them, be silent. Literally, the Greek is be muzzled. Put a muzzle on that, cut it out. The God of creation tells his creation to subdue and submit itself. And instantly at the rebuke of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, everything ended. What a wonderful thing to know that all our God has to do is speak the word. It's all he has to do is speak the word and, and everything can instantly change and transform. And what a wonderful consolation to know that authority and that power is there just in the spoken word of our God to entertain and do what's best on our behalf to help us. He says, verse seven, Lord, you yourself are to be feared. And I imagine greatly that was true when they saw 185,000 people laying around dead in the morning. He says, Lord, uh, you yourself are to be feared. And of course, the, the idea there, the fear of God is it's not, you know, terror. You're afraid of some, you know, judge or some, you know, person that's threatening. The idea is, is just a reverential awe. The idea is, is, is a healthy respect, right? It, it's, 
it's it's the uh, attitude that any child should properly and healthy in a healthy way have for example towards their father you both love your father and yet if you're healthy and sane you fear your father right and, and that that's normal that's typical and, and a healthy relationship that's what it's like you love him tremendously and you know at the same time right he brought you into the world and he will bring you out in a second if that's what's necessary. So there's that healthy balance of love and fear. It's a respect or a reverence. And that's the idea. It's the same way with God. God's to be feared. He should always be respected. He should be reverenced. We should never you know, uh, become uh, tr- you know, trivial in the way that we relate to God. It makes me shudder sometimes when I hear people speak in some of the ways that you refer to God, or the, you know, the big man upstairs or whatever. I'm just, uh, some of the ways that people speak about God and toward God sometimes, I think to myself, are you, are you crazy, man? <laughs> like in the same way that, you know, if we saw one of your buddies, like, you know, mouthing off to his dad and you're thinking, dude, you are about to get whacked, man. Like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> and yet people speak towards God and behave towards God and have no fear of God. And we forget that this loving, gracious, kind God, the Bible also says that our God is a consuming fire. He's God. Our very breath is being held in his hands. Our heart continuing to beat. How do I know that? Well, what happened in one night? 185,000 people who are on the other side of the wall thinking the next day they're going to kill all of those people of God over there because we're sick of this Jehovah God, Bible thumper, righteous people. We're done with them. We're going to get rid of them. And and one night God said, you know what? Your heart's done beating. Tit. Heart stop. Done. Somebody like that's worthy to be feared, right? And so he says, we should always have a healthy fear of God. Ecclesiastes tells us we should stand in all of God. We should never lose just that healthy reverence and awe of who God is. Though he's loving and gracious, he is an almighty and an all-powerful God. And the psalmist learned that. He, Lord, you yourself are to be feared. Who may stand, he says, notice, in your presence when once you are angry. Boy, that, that's a great thought to consider, to consider there. When you make God angry, you anger God. You offend a righteous, holy, just God. He says, who can stand in God's presence when he's angry? Nobody can. Nobody can stand in the presence of the wrath of God and angry God. And this is why it is so important to understand the need of forgiveness through Jesus. The, the cleansing of the guilt of our sin, because the Bible tells us that our sin causes offense towards God. God's righteous. God's holy. God's pure in every way. And he's a judge. And so, therefore, we need to realize that that puts us in a bad place before God. We are, the Bible tells us, under the wrath of God. That's our, our natural condition. Ephesians says that we are by nature children of wrath. That's why we need God's mercy and his forgiveness. He says, who can stand in the presence of God when once he is angry? He says, verse 8, you cause judgment to be heard in heaven. The idea is God declared that judgment was about to happen. The earth feared and was still. And when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. So at a certain point, God saw notice his people being oppressed on the earth and God intervened to deliver them. That's what God did in that act there with the Assyrians. And you know, I think there are times where God will do the same. He's done the same and God may do the same again and again where he sees his people being oppressed 
He sees his people being taken advantage of, and God will arise to judgment and deliver his people in such a way. Verse 10 is such a classic statement from the scripture. Verse 10 says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you with the remainder of wrath. You shall gird yourself. Now, that is called the reality of an unconquerable God right there. He says, even the wrath of man. Now, in the prior verses, he's talking about the wrath of God, and that is not something that you want to trifle with. Now he turns to the wrath of man. That is man's anger towards God, man's you know, anger towards the things of God or the people of God. And he says, the wrath of man ultimately, he says, God's able to take even the wrath of man and to transition it, to change it, and to use it to ultimately bring praise to himself. You know, I encourage you, read through the scripture and you find that reality happening time and time again, even in the word of God, right? Think of even, you know, Daniel, some of the very familiar stories that we know. You know, Daniel chapter three with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and ultimately as they don't bow down to what they're asked to, to do and they say, look, you know, sorry, if, if necessary, then we're gonna trust our God. But we're not going to compromise what we know to be right spiritually or morally just to appease you, no matter how much power you have on the earth. And if that means we face judgment, then we'll face judgment and we'll trust our God with that. And if he intervenes to deliver us, great. If he doesn't, then we'd rather die honoring him. And of course, what happens, right? They get thrown into the fiery furnace because they don't bow down, right, to the great statue there under Nebuchadnezzar. And when they're thrown into the fiery furnace, it tells us that as they look into the furnace, it says they saw what? A fourth personage who looked like it was the son of God walking in the midst of the fire. And they're all scratching. I said, wait a minute. How many did we throw in there again? Three, boss. Are you sure? Check the records. Three, I'm telling you. Three. Then why is it there's a fourth person? I see a fourth person in there. A fourth person. And it looks like the son of God. And then they come out. And not only are they not burnt or harmed, but it says they don't even smell like smoke. Because God miraculously does something, the presence of the Lord, I believe it was potentially the, the, the Lord Jesus himself in a pre-incarnate appearance showed up and, and took care of his servants who were honoring him in that situation. And because they did what was right to honor the Lord, he honored their obedience and their faithfulness and he preserved them and he showed up in a wonderful way to, to, to care for them and so doing that. And what happened? The end result is it was the wrath of man and ended up causing everybody to, to praise God. <laughs> because they were astonished at how great God was. When you get to chapter six, the same thing happens later on with Daniel in the lion's den. Same scenario again. Daniel refuses to submit to the edict that he's not allowed to, to pray. He continues to maintain his prayer life and worshiping God as the result of that and the whole thing they had set up. Sorry, Daniel, you're gonna have to get tossed into the lion's den. Daniel gets tossed into the lion's den and as a result of getting tossed in the lion's den, it creates an opportunity again for God to demonstrate his power and his faithfulness and the end result of that, what happens? As the king sees that Daniel is preserved on the other side of that, he ends up saying, look, there is no God like Daniel's God and you know what? Now I'm changing my way. Everybody's praising that God. If a God can keep somebody alive in the lion's den all night long like that, then now everybody needs to praise him. And now he goes from, you know, this side and over here. And now you have the, the person using their authority and power telling everybody they should praise God. And what is God? God just turns the whole thing around. He takes the wrath of man, the anger of man towards God and the ways of God, trying to do everything to stop God in his ways. And God says, no problem. I'll just spin that. 
and he just turns it around and uses it for a way to garner praise and more glory for himself. And of course, the ultimate way that God did this in a way greater than no others, even in what happened with Jesus, right? How did Jesus end up on the cross beyond the fact that it was God's predetermined will for him to, to suffer and die in our place for our sins? But what was it? It was, it was the hatred of man towards Jesus that though he was completely innocent and guiltless, they hated him and despised him. And it was the wrath of man that put Jesus upon that cross and caused him to be crucified. And the wrath of man, what did God do? God took the wrath of man and the wrath of the devil and he turned it around and he brought tremendous, look how much praise that ended up bringing to God, how much praise that ends up bringing to the Lord. So God can do this. And what a wonderful encouragement. You know, let people become as angry, as nasty, as whatever, as they want to be in their wrath. And it, it is interesting, the wrath of man. The, because men can get incredibly angry towards God and the ways of God and you and I as Christians sometime and what we represent and what the word of God represents. But he says, even the wrath of man, God can use it to bring praise to himself. And, and he says, with the remainder of the wrath, you shall gird yourself. Almost like, you know, putting it on like a garment. And the way I almost see that there is almost like, God saying, look, I can handle it. I'll absorb all the extra wrath. I'll use some of the wrath to bring praise to myself. The rest of the wrath, I'll just absorb it myself and embrace it because I'm God and it doesn't really harm me ultimately what men do. So he says, verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Again, that is if we make some commitment, he's encouraging us to, to honor, to follow through, the psalmist says, make vows. But he says, pay them. If you're going to make a commitment, then follow through with that honor the Lord and let all those who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off, notice the spirit of princes, for he is awesome to the kings of the earth. So again, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter how powerful a person may be. Nobody is in any way going to intimidate God. Nobody's going to dethrone God. Nobody's going to back God into a corner. He says here, the princes and the kings. What are the, these? Those are the highest ranking people on the earth, right? People in places of authority, government officials, princes, kings, those that many times intimidate other people. And he says, God will cut their spirit off and deal with them in the same way he would the fleshly nature of any other human being. Psalm 77 is a psalm, we'll see, of someone dealing with a time when they felt completely overwhelmed in their soul. So this is a psalm of the psalmist here processing, dealing with feelings and thoughts of just being very uh, overwhelmed with anguish and trouble. And I think this is a great reminder because sometimes we find ourselves perhaps in that place and we see how he processed it. You'll notice that the first part of the psalm is filled with personal pronouns. So it's all about how the psalmist is feeling, the psalmist's struggle, his, uh, you know, his anxieties, the things that were causing anguish, and it's all about what he's dealing with. And so the whole focus is self-focus. And then as you get to around Psalm, uh, verse 13 anyway, the remainder of it, the focus shifts. And it goes from being focused on self and how I'm feeling and what I'm dealing with and what I'm overwhelmed by. And then the focus goes off of personal pronouns and then it's all directly attention upon God. And the psalmist shifts his focus from himself and wallowing in his own self-pity and his struggles and, and just you know sinking and sinking and sinking to turning his attention towards God. And that's ultimately how he ends up getting himself out of the pit. 
and getting himself, you'll see the tone completely shifts by the end of the psalm. So he begins by saying, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. Notice, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul, he says, refused to be comforted. I remembered God and I was troubled. I complained, look at the end of verse three, I have this underline, and my spirit was overwhelmed, he says. So he's describing this experience where he genuinely at a time in his life felt completely overwhelmed, mentally, emotionally, just felt completely as if he was on the edge. This is a worshiper of God, but yet he feels incredibly overwhelmed by whatever he's dealing with in his life, circumstantially, and then the mental and emotional pressures of the anxieties of all that. And you see how he's processing that. He says, what did he do? He says, I cried out to God with my voice. Again, the idea of to cry out implies passionate. That's not just, I talked to God. No, he says, I cried out. God, help. God, I am completely overwhelmed. Again, please don't miss that statement there in verse three. My spirit, the inward person, was overwhelmed. Have you ever felt in your spirit completely overwhelmed? Maybe it's because of the circumstances you're dealing with. Maybe it's just a time when you're really in a very hard time, something you're going through in a situation. Maybe it's just the you know, the, 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 the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions and all of that, just the cumulative effect of all that, where literally you feel completely overwhelmed, like you're on the edge, just totally overwhelmed. I, I just, I'm about to sink. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, look, that's okay. That's normal at times. The psalmist felt like that. And this certainly isn't the first psalm, for those of you who've been journeying with us, where we see the genuine human emotion being expressed here. He's saying, this is how I felt. Well, what did he do in the midst of that? It tells us, not that he contacted a a, a therapist. He says, I cried out to God. I said, God, I'm overwhelmed. I'm just completely overwhelmed. Please, God, help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I cried out to God, he says, with my voice. And notice, he gave ear to me. God doesn't keep hours, right? Maybe you can call a therapist from eight to five, but what if it's two in the morning? God's still open. A person may not always be available. I try and be as available as possible pastorally, but there are times people call and they get voicemail. It happens, right? We can try and reach out to other people. We can turn to other people, but the wonderful thing is God is always available. God is always willing to listen. And here's the most incredible thing. He's way better at acting to help in our situation than any person can anyway. His resources, his power, his assistance is so much greater. And not that we shouldn't reach out to others and there's anything wrong with sharing what's going on in our lives with other people. I think God uses that. It's part of the way we process it. But what a wonderful thing to know that God is always willing to listen. He's always available and that we can cry out to him. And the psalmist says, and this is the wonderful thing is he gave ear to me. He listened. God gave me his attention. God will give you his attention if you cry out to him, whatever it is 
that may be going on, times you feel overwhelmed. He says, verse 2, and in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out, he says, even in the night. The idea is continuously, not just all day, but all the way through to the night as I'm laying there in bed and I still can't go to sleep. My hand, he says, continued to be stretched out to the Lord without ceasing because he says my soul just refused to be comforted. He said, I just I could not get myself back regulated again, mentally, emotionally. I just could not get comfort in my soul. I was all torn up inside. And I love the fact that verse two, that the declaration in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. The idea is that when he realized he was in a very troublesome time, a time in his life when he had genuine trouble going on and a time in his life when his spirit felt overwhelmed, he saw a very important antidote was to get serious about prayer. And I'll tell you something. This is one area where I really feel like as the body of Christ, so many times we genuinely tend to just overlook is we get into a spot where it is the day of trouble and we are completely overwhelmed and we are in a really bad spot in a really hard time. And what God is saying is, here's how I want to help in that. I want you to cry out to me and to seek me and to let me help you and to let me work through that and to let me show you what I can do for you in whatever that means or looks like. And yet so many times, the thing that we fail to do is to take the avenue that God's trying to lead us down. And, and I've said this before, but, but I'll say it again. I have seen time and time, sadly, over the years, you know, from a pastoral perspective, not just a Christian, but, you know, people tell you when their life's in a crisis, what's going on, they share, and, 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 oh, and, and they're maybe really in a really bad time. Maybe they're really going through a troublesome time and a real hard time. And, and you would think, that because they're in such a time of trouble, that their prayer life would ratchet up. And any opportunity there was to get together with the people of God and pray, they would think, I have got to pray now in a way like I've never prayed before. And yet they'll be in the day of trouble, but they have no interest in genuinely embracing opportunities to seek the Lord and pray. And all I can say is this, is it, it just flabbergasts me. I just don't understand it. I, I just don't understand it when God is trying to use the troublesome time to cause us to cultivate a deeper dependence upon him and to seek him and to pray. And I truly wonder sometime if some of the troubles that we deal with in the church would be miraculously changed and transformed sometimes if as God's people, we would realize what the psalmist says, in the day of my trouble, I got serious about seeking the Lord. I sought the Lord and I, and I just kept stretching out my hand to him and I remembered God because my soul was troubled. He says, verse four, describing his battle, he says, and you hold my eyelids open. What's that speaking about? Couldn't sleep. Ever have that happen? Your, your spirit's overwhelmed. You're struggling even with resting. He says, God, I feel like you're keeping me up all night. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. The idea is I couldn't even find the words to talk about it. I just felt so overwhelmed. I didn't even know how to talk about it and describe it. I, I couldn't even articulate the trouble I felt within. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times, and I call to remembrance my song in the night, and I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. So 
Again, his spirit's overwhelmed. He can't sleep. He doesn't know how to articulate with his own words exactly all that he's going through because it's just hard to describe the difficulty of what he's feeling. He's meditating and trying to think through and search out things as he's lying on his bed at night, just why, just why, why, why? And, and just kind of wrestling with all that mentally. These are all natural things we deal with. And verse seven through nine, this then leads the psalmist to start to ask some questions now. Now, these are genuine questions that, again, are in a sense, you know, leading the mind down a wrong road, but ways that he was feeling. He says, verse seven, will the Lord cast off forever? Now, what's the answer to that? No, of course not. The Bible says he never leaves us or forsakes us. But yet the psalmist feels like that he has been cast off by the Lord. Whatever he's going through, he feels like, not that it's true, but his feeling is, Lord, I just feel like you've kind of cast off my my file off your desk. Ever felt like that? I just just feel like your file got pushed off my desk. I don't understand. Will the Lord cast off forever, he says? Will he be favorable no more? Lord, I, I feel like that just your, your, your favor and your help is just not there anymore. It feels like you're, you're not involved. Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed? Lord, I thought you gave promises. It doesn't seem like you're answering your promises. Lord, why hasn't your promise been fulfilled in this area? He says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And then he says, Selah, think upon this. In other words, he asks six questions there. And really what he's just struggling with is God is not acting in the timetable that he wished God would act in. And all of us know that frustration, right? Lord, this is a troublesome time. I'm overwhelmed. Why aren't you changing this? Why aren't, and, and, and then what we start to do is when we let our mind go down that road, then we start questioning the character of God. And that's really what the psalmist is struggling with. Lord, it seems like you've cast me off. Seems like you're not favorable anymore. Where's your mercy, God? Seems like your promises have failed me. Like you've forgotten to be gracious and that in anger, you've just shut me up from any tender help or assistance in my life. Now, none of those things are true about God, but these are natural struggles that we can have sometimes in our moments of depression and discouragement, right? We, I think we all can relate to that to some degree when you just start to wrestle with thoughts and ultimately you find yourself saying, I just don't understand. It seems like God's working in everybody else's life. Lord, why aren't you working in my life? Lord, why is it so hard for me? Why am I going through this? And again, we, we, we begin to mentally wrestle and struggle. He says, verse 10, I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the most of the right hand of the most high. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old and I will meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. So the psalmist says clearly in just genuine honesty, verse 10, he says, referring to those, all those prior statements, this is my anguish. This is how I feel right now. My spirit's overwhelmed. I can't sleep. I can't find any comfort in my soul. I just keep being restless and I just don't understand. It seems like God's not helping. God's not changing things. I don't know why I'm so torn up and why I'm so upset. But he says, what I do know is I need to stop thinking about myself so much. Because you see what he says in verse 10? He says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the most high. I will remember 
the works of the Lord. Surely, he says a third time, I will remember your wonders of old and meditate on all your work. What does the psalmist say he's going to do? He says, instead of reflecting on everything in my life that's making me overwhelmed or that I'm not happy about or that's hard in my life right now, he says, instead, what I'm going to do is shift my focus and I am going to reflect upon all of the good things God has done in my life up to this point. Right? There's that old song, you know, count your blessings one by one. There's, there's, something, there's something very therapeutic about that. There truly, truly is about thinking about God's past faithfulness. Rather than being overwhelmed by the present struggles and hardships, sometimes it's a really valuable thing to just back up and to reflect upon all of the powerful and wonderful and good things God has done in your life. And he has. You may just need to think about it a little bit longer. There are a lot of good things God's done in your life through the years. Ways that he's shown up, that he's shown his favor and his help. Many ways he's blessed and worked in your life. And sometimes it's good to just start thinking about the good things God has done. Because that takes the focus off of what maybe he hasn't done or isn't doing that you don't understand or that's making you kind of be overwhelmed within. And he says, and not only am I going to think about that, verse 12, look what he also says, and I will what? The end of it. Meditate on it and then talk of your deeds. That is, instead of talking about all the things that are making you unhappy and overwhelmed, and look, I understand there's a value in expressing and getting things out of our soul. Sometimes we need to do that, right? We need to just get it out. We need to talk it through with somebody. But the problem is, is once we get it out, then it's all we talk about. And sometimes we spend a little too long harping on it, complaining about it, focusing on it, and it becomes the constant topic of our conversation all the time, all the time. And look, here's the reality. That does nothing good for us, right? I know it does nothing good for me because I've been there, done that. I can speak for myself. Maybe it helps. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help my mind. doesn't help my spirit. doesn't help my disposition. But what does help is change the subject, he says, I'm going to think about all the good things God done, and then I'm going to start to talk about the deeds of God. I'm going to just start talking about good things about God and put the focus on God and start to think about and talk to other people about the good things that God has done. And he says now, verse 13, notice, notice the shift. Now all he begins to think about is exactly what he just said. He says, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. That is in a place of worship. That's a great reminder. What's the way of God? How does God work? How does God help those who are overwhelmed? How does God bring us back into alignment when mentally, emotionally, or spiritually we're all over the place? His way is in the sanctuary. Remember what we just looked at in Psalm 73? Isn't that exactly a description of exactly what happened in Psalm 73 where the psalmist was angry and upset and he couldn't understand why the wicked were prospering and he was trying to do everything right and struggling? He says, and then I went into the house of God. And when he went into the house of God, his perspective changed. And all of a sudden he realized, oh, okay, yeah, what was I thinking all week long? This is what really matters. This, and, and he says, your way, God, the way that God works is in the sanctuary. That's why it's a great benefit to be in the sanctuary because that's the way, the place that God often works spiritually. Who is so great a God, he says, as our God? Boy, what a difference. Verse 3, I, what's that word say? Complained. Verse 3, he's complaining. 
Verse three, his spirit is overwhelmed. Now what's he doing? Instead of complaining, he's praising God. (laughs) Who is so great? He's changed the conversation subject. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God, verse 14, he says, who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So there he seems to be beginning to allude the idea of redeeming the people of Jacob and Joseph. That's a reference to the nation of Israel. Speaking of what God's great arm redeeming his people, he's probably referring to the redemption or the deliverance of bondage out of slavery in Egypt. How God intervened and redeemed them and bought them back out of slavery in that bondage to make them his chosen people. The great power and wonder that God did to bring about that deliverance. Verse 16 and going down, it seems like he kind of alludes to the perhaps the, the opening of the Red Sea when God brought about that mighty deliverance and kind of picturesque language here. He says, verse 16, talking about the power of God and the greatness of God to work on behalf of his people. He says, God, the waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you, and they were afraid. Creation saw its creator and submitted. The depths of the sea also, he says, trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows, potentially a reference to lightning, like arrows coming down, also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind and the lightnings lit up the world and the earth trembled and shook. Now, we don't know. Verse 17 and 18 there could be giving us a little bit of insight to some of the way that God, by his power, brought past the parting of the Red Sea. We have no reference of this back in the book of Exodus, but here he talks about rain and a storm and lightning and thunder and a whirlwind, perhaps giving some details of how God miraculously used those things in a powerful way to part the sea for his people. Because he says, verse 19, your way, the way out, the way through the hardship they were in, your way was in the sea, your path was in the great waters. Remember, God made a path where there was no path. He made a way when there was no way. But he says, yet your footsteps were not known. In other words, God was working in a way whereby he was leading his people miraculously and supernaturally, but there wasn't the footprints of God walking through the Red Sea, but it was very clear God was leading, right? God did a miraculous thing He made a way, he delivered them out of one thing and he was delivering and bringing them into something else and he was supernaturally working on their behalf. But yet in a sense, he wasn't making his presence known in the sense of his footsteps were known. He was doing something miraculous and supernatural. And sometimes God works in miraculous ways for our lives. But then verse 20, and this is an interesting, again, as we talk about balance to all things, look what he says, verse 20, as he concludes the psalm. He says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So sometimes God leads in miraculous, powerful, mighty ways. Where like the parting of the Red Sea, where God just does something amazing. Whoa, look at that, the parting of the, wow. And God does something incredible and amazing and awesome. Other times, God leads by just natural, everyday, ordinary events. By the hand and the instrumentality of two of his humble servants, Moses and Aaron, who were, he says, leading the people of God 
like a flock. He says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Through the instrumentality of Moses' leadership and Aaron's spiritual ministry, God was leading his people like a flock as the chief shepherd of the flock. He was using these under shepherds to lead them in a very natural way. And I love the fact that the psalmist could recognize sometimes God is working in the powerful, awesome, miraculous things he's doing. And other times God is working in simple, natural, everyday, ordinary affairs. And he leads in those things too. And he, and he works in everyday affairs. Sometimes as we say before, God just works in very supernaturally natural ways. What an incredible shift. Again, as I said, when you look at this psalm, here the psalmist begins at the, at, at the early part of the psalm. His spirit's overwhelmed. He's complaining. He can't sleep. He can't find comfort in his soul. And, and in a matter of a few moments, as he's praying and crying out to God and talking it through, and then he starts shifting his focus on God He gets off of the inward, introspective, sulking in himself, looking at all of his own problems, and he puts his focus on God, and he starts praising God. And by the end of the psalm, his spirit's in a completely different condition. Isn't that amazing? Without a counseling session, without a therapist, without medicines, nothing. Amazing. See, and I'm not belittling them things. What I'm trying to say is God's a really great therapist, man. God's an incredible therapist. And he's got some really good therapies. Prayer, praise, worship, seeking the Lord, entering into the sanctuary of God, being with the people of the Lord where his spirit moves and does wonderful things and helps us, encourages us. And the Bible says times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. God's got really marvelous ways and they're free. That's the best part that I love all. Wonderful, always available. And they actually work. They genuinely actually work. You know, we are very integrated beings physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And sometimes I do genuinely wonder if sometimes we completely discount the fact that some of the struggles that people are dealing with in their soul aren't necessarily so much mental or emotional as much as sometimes they could genuinely be spiritual. And if perhaps there was a greater focus upon God and a deeper fellowship with God, a lot of the struggles that we deal with and sometimes defeat us as people, we might have a little better success rate of conquering those things if we were turning to the Lord more and helping other people to do the same and letting them realize that this Roman says that he is a God of hope, a God of hope. That's what people need. Let's stand.